If you have a Bible, you can turn in the Old Testament to Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2, we'll read the whole chapter, verses 1 through 22. Lend your attention, this is the very word of God. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver, search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come understanding and knowledge. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you, understanding will guard you, delivering you from the evil way, from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of unrighteousness to walk the ways of darkness. Rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Mark that wisdom is with the Lord. Mark that the Lord is pleased to give wisdom. Mark that the Lord calls us to seek wisdom. Mark that the seeking will not be in vain for those who seek in faith and obedience. This is a gift of the people of God, one that is sealed and assured unto us in that he has given us the Lord Jesus Christ, and thus he will hold back no good thing. And he calls us to seek these good things from his hand as those confident that he is pleased to give them. Join me in prayer as we ask God's blessing upon our sermon text and consideration this evening. Almighty Father, how wonderful is your word. The depths of its riches are inexhaustible, unfathomable. How precious it is to us. Grant your spirit that we might see wonders from your word, O Lord. That we might know rightly, Father, not as those who receive knowledge and puff themselves up, but as those who receive knowledge and yield a life of love, love towards you for all that you have done for us, love towards others 
as those to whom you are pleased to do good and to use us as your instruments. Posture us in meekness, O Lord, that we may receive the implanted word, which is able to save our souls. These things we ask in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. <clears throat> Continuing in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. We come to questions 40 and 41. Before we turn to the two questions, we'll read uh, two verses, both from Paul, but one from Romans, chapter 6, verse 14, and one from 1 Corinthians, chapter 9, verse 21. And turn our attention to God's Word. Lend your hearts, for this is the Word of God. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. 1 Corinthians 9, 21. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Mm. Question 40 asks, what did God at first reveal to man for the rule of his obedience? The rule which God at first revealed to man for his obedience was the moral law. In question 41, wherein is the moral law summarily comprehended? The moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. So we have two questions here bound together with one phrase, the moral law. The moral law was given from the very beginning according to this question. What rule did God give at the beginning? So the moral law has quite a history. It appears on the stage with Adam. Back in that world of mystery. At the very outset of all things. We don't just meet Adam, we don't just meet Eve, we don't just meet a strange serpent and these animals receiving their names from a grand king, we meet the moral law. And that makes sense because we meet a God who is righteous and holy and this moral law is that which God has given to reflect his character as righteous and holy to his creatures. But we've got a rather strained relationship with the moral law, don't we? We don't like the term law. Even in our social life, uh, the notion of uh, a law can give the impression of being oppressive and restrictive. Annoying. <laughs> Generate certain uh, dynamics and responses in the soul that are unpleasant and would seem to suggest that perhaps the law is the problem. Perhaps this law needs to go. That was a lie from the beginning, wasn't it? 
that the law was the problem, that the commandment was the problem and the implication that the lawgiver was the problem. That he really was trying to keep you from something, withhold from you something, oppress you, restrict you, and thus liberty was to be found in transgression. And so the fact that we have a difficulty with the concept of law and the moral law in particular isn't that surprising. It goes way back. So let's Mr. Uh, shorter catechism here, and I'm drawing much from the larger catechism and uh, chapter 19 of the Westminster Confession, which I commend to you as a is an excellent treatment of the law of God. Chapter 19 of the Westminster Confession is an, a masterful treatment of the law of God. Looking at the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 94, it asks, uh, of what use is the moral law? And it answers, the moral law is of great use. It attacks us at perhaps the most basic notion of wanting to cast off a law. Whether this in our posture of rebelliousness apart from Christ, or this in a more complicated posture of rebellion as those in Christ who reject entirely the notion of law completely. If you've read the marrow of modern divinity, purportedly by Edward Fisher, preserved by Thomas Boston, in addition with his notes, this is the problem that he tackles. He presents a sort of pilgrim's progress situation where you meet three characters. You meet antinomian, you meet legalist, Antinomista, nomista, and evangelist, minister. And antinomist says, well, what his name implies. No law. The law has nothing to do with us anymore. As creatures of no use. The law is of no use for a Christian. To which the Westminster Larger Catechism, in complete harmony with Scripture, says the law is of great use to all men, Christian, unbeliever alike. Paul says something very similar. The law is good or useful, if you will, as long as one uses it rightly, Paul says. Or more plainly, that most beloved of Psalms in this congregation, Psalm 119 Declaring the excellencies of God's law. How good it is, how delightful it is, how enlightening it is, how rich it is, how wonderful it is, how freeing it is, how liberating it is. You get the sense that the law is useful. Psalm 119 wouldn't be penned. So the first point that's worth making is maybe you don't need to hear it, maybe you do. I don't know. The moral law is of great use for you. The moral law is of great use for you. 
But why does it qualify and say that the moral law is of great use? Why not just the law? Why not just say the law is of great use? Why distinguish that the moral law is of great use? Well, what is the moral law? We hear it here. The moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. Westminster Confession of Faith, 19, Westminster Larger Catechism, 93. You get a basic definition of God's moral law as that unchanging and perfect standard of righteousness forever binding on all. Unchanging, perfect standard of righteousness forever binding on all. The Lord Jesus Christ will go on further to uh, summarize a summary. <laughs> if the Ten Commandments are the summary of the moral law, the two great commandments are the summary of the Ten Commandments. Which the Lord Jesus Christ says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the second, like it, love your neighbor as yourself. This is a bit of a, a lecture-type moment. Maybe you don't need me to make this distinction for you, but it's worth knowing as those who are in a Presbyterian church, perhaps coming to love Reformed theology. In Reformed theology, we make the distinction between the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law. You'll find these distinctions in Westminster Confession of Faith 19. This Distinction is not new in Reformed theology. John Fesco, a scholar at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary, traces it through Aquinas back to Augustine, who's plainly seeing it on display in Scripture. This is not an innovation in the 16th century. This is a part of Christian interpretation of God's Word. So what do we mean when we say the ceremonial law? We mean those laws given to regulate Israel's life of worship. In the old economy, God was preparing a people to understand the reality of his holiness, their sinfulness, and their true need for forgiveness and cleansing and a mediator. These laws, strange to us concerning diet, and purity and sacrifices and regalia for priests and processes of approach, they whiff of a strangeness for us. But they prefigure the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were given to Israel to keep them distinct from the nations until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is the ceremonial law still binding? No, we say. It was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the glorious message of the epistle of Hebrews. Marking that not only is Jesus greater than the ceremonial, he's greater than Moses. <laughs> he's greater than Aaron. He's greater than Levi. These key figures. 
fixtures and the constellation of the ceremonial law. He's greater than those. He's fulfilled everything that those anticipated as God was preparing to bring a people unto himself in the most intimate of fashions through the great high priest, through the sufficient sacrifice, through the one whose blood alone cleanses from sin, through the one who has taken his seat, not in a tabernacle made with hands, but in the heavenly places. Well, what do we mean by the civil law? Ceremonial law, civil law. Well, Israel was a nation. They were a theocracy. They received their constitution directly from God. Unlike the church, they were a body politic, to use the language of Westminster Confession 19. She had her own economy. She had her own standing army. She had her own foreign policy, trade, industry, as a nation of this world. And as such, God gave them a body of legislation to order their life as a nation. It was unique to their time and their place, and it expired with the nation of Israel. Fulfilled once more in the Lord Jesus Christ, the true Israel. Now we go on to say that even in those laws, those civil laws, we do see the, the righteousness of God's natural law on display, flickered variously in particular manifestations. So there is a sense in which we can say all of God's law is of great use. You just got to work a little bit harder for ceremonial and civil. They're not binding anymore. You do see God's wisdom and goodness on display in the ceremonial and the civil law, preserving, providing for a particular people in a particular time, preparing them to receive her king. Yet the moral law is of especially great use as that standard of righteousness which continues until the end of this world. The other two divisions had an expiration date. It was like milk. <laughs> you use it after a certain time, you're going to retch. <laughs> the moral law has no expiration date. It's known by all. It's unchangeable. There will never, ever, ever, ever be a time when a summary of the perfect standard of righteousness is not love the Lord your God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. It's not going anywhere. <laughs> it is perpetual because it's rooted and grounded in the very character of our righteous and unchangeable God. So then it's not surprising that we also say that it's of great use to all men, not some, not just the church, not just those outside the church, to all men. It's a universal law given by God to all human beings. Now we say that it is unique in its use for different classes of men. There are some uses which are common to all. 
There are some uses specific to pagans. There are some uses specific to Christians. So for instance, Westminster Larger Catechism asks, what particular use is there of the moral law to unregenerate men? What use is the moral law to unbelievers, to pagans, to non-Christians? And it answers, the moral law is of use to unregenerate men to awaken their conscience to flee from the wrath to come and to drive them to Christ. Or, upon their continuance in the estate and way of sin, to leave them inexcusable and under the curse thereof. God is pleased to use the law to awaken the conscience. This is the particular use that comes home to the hearts of unbelievers. Perhaps you can recall the rather jarring experience with the law in this capacity. As the Lord opened your eyes to your dreadful condition. As the Lord opened your eyes to the fact that you were marred and stained with a stain that you could not remove. You'll see this approach taken by many street evangelists. There's the one, he's very popular. I've seen him do it a number of times. And he'll approach people and he'll say, do you think you're a good person? And most people will say, yeah, I'm a good person. Do you think God will accept you because you're a good person? Yeah, I think God will accept me because I'm a good person. Well, have you ever lied? Well, yeah. <laughs> have you ever stolen? Well, yeah. Have you ever had sex with someone who's not your husband or wife? Well, yeah. Well, according to the king's law, you are not good. <laughs> you are a guilty criminal. And the divine sentence is death. What say you? And we think, oh, that's so passe. The enemy is convinced that it's ridiculous. It's so silly to convince people that they're criminals to use the law in this way. But it's God's way. He did it to you. He did it to me. I don't know how jarring your experience was with it, whether you just gradually grew in this realization, maybe from the very beginning, that you needed Christ, that you were a sinner and you needed Christ, or maybe it was very dramatic, where all of a sudden you realized not that you had failed in one or two areas, but that you stood under a sentence of death legitimately. That it wasn't that you just failed to do some good, it was that you had failed to do any good and had devoted yourself to doing ill. That's a very jarring experience. May God's name be praised. That he's pleased to awaken the conscience of sinners. We don't need to shrink back from the old ways. We don't need to blush when it's plainly the wisdom of God on display. We can still challenge the supposed goodness of our unbelieving neighbors in love, praying that God will awaken their conscience by this particular use of the moral law and send them fleeing to Christ. That's what he did for you. That's what he did for me. Maybe not so dramatically, but truly. 
Let's not lose heart as we continue to pray for the lost. But let's also not despise God's good pleasure of using the law to awaken the conscience of sinners, to shatter the delusion of goodness that so many entertain in their minds, and this at the deceptive influence of the devil. But is the moral law only for the unregenerate? May it never be. <laughs> no. So we ask, how does the moral law function in the life of the Christian? Of what use is the moral law to you, believer in Christ? That's the question that Westminster Larger Catechism asks. 97. What special use is there of the moral law to the regenerate? <clears throat> it answers by telling us how the law is not useful. That's interesting. <laughs> this is how it starts. They that are regenerate and believe in Christ are delivered from the moral law as a covenant of works. So as thereby they are neither justified nor condemned. So in asking of what special use the moral law is for Christians, it goes on to say of what use it is decidedly not for Christians. That's interesting. It marks a certain ten tendency in our heart to view our standing before God as performance-based, as work-based, as founded upon something other than the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So even in expressing what use there is of what great use there is of the moral law in the life of the Christian, it still starts with a warning. It says it's not of this use. It's not useful as a covenant of works. It's not useful for you to justify yourself, and it's not useful for you to condemn yourself either. They say, Christian, you're going to be tempted to run to the law for your justification or your condemnation. And not only that, our enemy is often going to use this trick to work in us self-righteousness or despair. To work in us complacency or the lie that we are beyond the reach and love of God. This is what Apollyon did to Christian as he walked the way in Pilgrim's Progress. Do you remember this scene when Christian met Apollyon? Apollyon brought before Christian all of his sin and failure. Not just his sins and failures when Christian was not serving the true and living God. His sins and failures when he was serving the God of this world. And then he went further and he put before him all of his sins and failures since he had begun to serve the true and living God. And he says, see, this is why you are condemned. This is why the Lord of the land to which you are journeying will never accept you. Mark if you haven't experienced that in some way or another. You grow complacent in your own supposed righteousness. Sin. <laughs> Or you see your sin, perhaps in a moment of conviction, and you begin to spiral. You think, I've never done anything well. <laughs> I didn't do this well. I'm always putting my foot in my mouth. 
Even my devotion is sincere for a moment and then it fizzles out. I'm constantly, constantly, constantly stumbling. And who's right there to condemn you? Your enemy. You can't see him. But that's that relentlessness. That's that darkness that opens up. You want to know how you're being convicted by the Spirit? It will lead you into the arms of Christ. That conviction will move you to flee to Christ. You want to know if it's the enemy and his fiery darts? You go deeper and deeper into the abyss of despair. He loves to condemn. He loves to accuse the brothers and the sisters day and night. What say you, Christian, when Apollyon confronts you on the way? You served me for a long time. You've got a lot of red in your ledger. <laughs> and not just that, since you started serving him, you don't seem to be a very good servant. What say you? Well, John Newton makes our reply. A vile sinner indeed I am. <laughs> but since God, who alone has a right to judge, is pleased to justify me in Jesus, who is there that shall dare condemn? Bless you and those precious words. Mm. Think of all the sin Apollyon could bring against you in your past life or in your life since commencing following after Christ. What are you going to claim as your confidence in those moments when he makes his most reasonable and true case against you? Are you accepted with God because you've not sinned since becoming a Christian? Perish the thought. Mm -hmm. Are you accepted with God because of the purity of your service since becoming a Christian? Perish the thought. Are you accepted with God because you've loved one another with an earnest love? You haven't. Are you accepted with God because you've loved God with a perfect love? You haven't. You're accepted with God because the Lord Jesus Christ has made an all-sufficient atonement for your soul and mine. Charles Bridges asks, where in my strictest walk is my hope of acceptance? Where in my strictest walk, Charles Bridges asks, and Charles Bridge is commends an earnest and strict walk. <laughs> Read his exposition on Psalm 119. I love it. It's delightful. Where in my strictest walk is my hope of acceptance? Only in him whose obedience has fulfilled all righteousness in my stead. And whose death has redeemed me from the curse of my unrighteousness. When repentance, prayer, and tears would have been to no avail. Paul says, do not look to the law and your imperfect obedience for the ultimate grounds of your acceptance and welcome with the Almighty. Look to God's storehouse of grace and mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. That explains why Paul can say in Romans 6.14, you are not under the law, but under grace. 
In what sense are we not under the law? In the sense that we've been delivered from the law as a covenant of works. For Christ has fulfilled the law as a covenant of works. For those who are in Christ, the law now neither justifies nor condemns. Paul could not state this more forcefully. He says, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Not moral obedience, not evangelical obedience. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That seems so plain to me. And in case that one isn't, he goes on to say other things. Like, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. May his name be praised. The law is of great use, but it is of no use to you, Christian, to either be justified or condemned. So then, if it is not our justification and condemnation... Of what use is it? First, it's useful because it shows us the most excellent character of our Heavenly Father. I'm reading a novel called Possession right now. A.S. Byatt. Has anyone read Possession by A.S. Byatt? Well, if you haven't read Tolstoy, yeah. oh, Richard has. Well, no, he hasn't. He's mocking me openly. <laughs> well, don't start on that unless you've finished Tolstoy, but here we are. It's about two scholars, English scholars, literature scholars, who study two respective poets, and their work is essentially done. The vision of these poets has been established, as it were. But then all of a sudden, new letters come to light, casting a fresh vision on what they thought was a, a finished project. And they cherish these letters. They love these letters. They delight in these letters because it's revealing to them something of those to whom they had devoted themselves those to whom they had taken no small pleasure in, in feeling that they had gotten to know throughout the course of their career. The law no, no longer sending us into fear over condemnation or justification, no fear with Christ's righteousness on. Now we see the excellencies of our God so plainly on display. It is holy and righteous and wise and good character. How wonderful to have a good father. How wonderful to be so plainly convinced that he is good in every and the fullest sense of that word. Just, righteous, holy. And it's not a holiness which threatens us anymore. But which places us in a posture of awe that such a one would call us child, my child, my son. The moral law is of use because we see the excellencies of our father therein on display. 
But that does bring with a, a difficult element as well. Because the moral law, though it doesn't condemn us, does reveal to us our remaining corruption. Does it not? It is the perfect standard of righteousness. The holiness and the righteousness and the goodness and the justice on display in the law presents us with a vision of loveliness which confronts us with the beauty of what we will be one day, but the difficulty of knowing we are not that now. That there is much of, uh, of ugliness that still clings to us. There is much that is unlovely that still clings to us. It acts as the mirror in Snow White. We look into it, we say, mirror, mirror, on the wall, who's the loveliest of them all? And the mirror says, the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> and in that, we're confronted with the gap <laughs> that exists. Yes, there's something of him that is on display in us and that is strengthening in us, but there is much of our old father that still mars our reflection, is there not? And it's the excellent portrait on display in the law that presses that upon our heart. It makes known his beauty and partly our unloveliness. Chad Van Dixhorn writes, the law exposes us. It convicts our consciences for our many failings. It helps us to mourn our wretchedness and it fosters a longing for deliverance from this bondage. This is hard, but good. It's hard to get a true take on a state that is less than ideal, is it not? But the truth is good. And we see how God uses that to facilitate in us humility, which is the next great use. The moral law humbles us. We don't like to be humbled, but it is the safest and best place for us. Running, I was making excellent strides. Pun. <laughs> I was progressing quite well. I was seeing uh, an increase in my speed, an increase in my stamina. I was able to keep a solid pace for unbroken long miles. I admit, I took a bit of pleasure passing other joggers. They were mostly old women. <laughs> Some of them had canes. <laughs> but I still delighted in it. <laughs> I was getting a little bit cocky, and then one afternoon I was running, and a university cross-country team appeared out of nowhere. <laughs> the men lapped me. The women lapped me. Their mascot lapped me. <laughs> it was humbling, to say the least. As much progress as we make in the Christian life, When the day of transformation comes, we're going to look back and laugh and see how small a start we had really made. <laughs> but 
but we can get cocky because we pass up the lame as a hobby jogger. <laughs> the law acts as that university cross-country team that puts us in our right place. Look, Michael, you're not going to win any Olympics. Don't get cocky. <laughs> And as I said before, it's hard to be humble, but it is always the best and safest place for us to be because God is near the humble. He draws near the lowly. The confrontation with our corruption and the humility that he works in our hearts as he forces us to grapple with the truth of where we are in the light of where we're going these are means to an end. And the end ultimately is to facilitate an exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ and to press upon our hearts our absolute need for him. And so we can say that the law, the moral law, exalts Christ. As one scholar puts it, the moral law enables the Christian to appreciate Christ by showing him how much he owes to Christ. That is, how much Christ has done for him in perfectly keeping the whole law and bearing its penalty on the Christian's behalf. You can see here the double excellency of Christ on display. His whole life perfectly embodied righteousness as true man. Everything he did was good, good, very good. Everything he did whiffed of the loveliness on display in the law, yielded unto his father in obedience and trust. David was a man after God's own heart. Jesus was David's greater son. There was no sin in him. There were no partial lapses. There was no spot or blemish. Even King Arthur had his blemishes. He knew it. He groaned it. He marveled that any would think him good. Such is the way for all good kings who are mere men. David, Hezekiah, Josiah, but not for the true king, not for the king of kings, not for the Lord Jesus Christ, who in his life, his person, his work was perfect righteousness all in all, even unto death. And that's the second excellency. It wasn't just that he did everything right. He stood in the stead of sinners willing to take unto himself the curse which the moral law demanded to be executed upon transgressors. Christ fulfilled the law's requirement for righteousness, and Christ fulfilled the law's righteous requirement for punishment. That's what Paul writes in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That glorious substitutionary aspect that Reverend Gibson pointed out this morning, which shines forth in that little preposition, for, in that pronoun, us. Christ for us. 
Christ in our stead. The great exchange, our sin for his righteousness, our curse for his blessing, our death for his life. Truly, the moral law exalts the Lord Jesus Christ. But this does bring us to a last observation. As those redeemed from the curse of the law, the moral law is now our rule of life. It is the guide to our evangelical obedience. What does righteousness look like? What does the life of obedience look like? What does the life of following after the Lord Jesus Christ looks like? It looks like love of God and love of neighbor. (laughs) It looks like exactly what the moral law says. This is the path of righteousness upon which he now leads us as his flock. As a shepherd leads his flock, he now leads us on this path of righteousness. This is the way to which he restores us when we wander like sheep who are still prone to wander unto their own destruction. And were it not for the good shepherd who retrieves and places back on the way, indeed we would ruin ourselves, but he will not allow it. As the good shepherd who sees us safely into his father's home. This is the way upon which he sustains us as he gives his life for our bread. Who is in need of a bread but a traveler? In what way does a traveler walk upon? Well, if the traveler's name is Christian, it is the way of righteousness upon which we are sustained by the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, received by faith in the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Are Christians under the law? Not as a covenant of works, but as a rule of life, yes. Or as Paul says, we are under the law of Christ Seeing now in the law, not our condemnation, but a vision of liberty, a vision of loveliness into which we have good hope we will be perfectly conformed, partially now and fully when Christ returns. May he teach us to say more and more, oh, Lord. How I love thy law. We say this because we have the spirit of Christ. Let's pray. Mm -hmm. Father, sanctify us by your word. Lead us in paths of righteousness. Magnify your son. Sustain us as you convict and humble. And lead us again and again into the arms of our faithful Savior. We ask in his name. Amen.